Hello, and uh, welcome to the third episode of the Scottish Council on Global Affairs podcast. My name is David Scott, and I'm a researcher at the Scottish Council on Global Affairs and the Glasgow Centre for International Law and Security at the University of Glasgow. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the Scottish Human Rights Bill, which is the Scottish Government's plans to domesticate a series of international uh, human rights treaties into Scots law. Um, and I'm really pleased today to be joined by Vary Snowden, who's the director of the Human Rights Consortium Scotland, and Laura Pasternak, the Policy and Public Affairs Manager at Who Cares Scotland. Vary and Laura, would you like to just introduce yourselves briefly in the, the work your organisations do? Thanks, David. I'm really uh, glad to join the podcast today. So, yeah, the Human Rights Consortium Scotland is uh, Scotland's civil society network that's all around human rights. So we have about 195 or so uh, organisations that are members of the network, and we just work together in whatever way we can to make sure uh, human rights are better protected and realised. So that often means uh, events and meetings and joint work and projects. And in particular, we've got real focus just now around this uh, Scottish Human Rights Bill. Wonderful, thanks. And Laura? Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me today. I am Laura and I'm um, working for Who Cares Scotland. So Who Cares Scotland is uh, Scotland's only national independent membership organisation for care experienced people. And our mission is to secure a lifetime of love, equality and respect for care experienced people in Scotland. We've got just over 4,100 members and our members are, are, are of all ages. Uh, and at the heart of our work um, are care experienced people's rights. We uh, provide individual relationship based independent advocacy to care experienced people and a range of participation and connection opportunities. Uh, and, we, and we work alongside corporate parents and policymakers and elected representatives to help keep the promise in Scotland. So the, the commitment to ensure that every child grows up loved, uh, safe and uh, respected and able to fulfil their, their potential following the independent care review. Amazing. Thank you both for, for joining me. So one of the reasons that we um, decided to convene this, this episode was that we've just published a report through the, the Human Rights Consortium Scotland um, which which I wrote with with both of your help, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, on the protection of care experienced people within the Scottish Human Rights Bill. Um, so that came out on Monday, and it's available on the the Human Rights Consortium Scotland's website. But maybe before we get into that report itself, we should maybe explain actually what the Scottish Human Rights Bill is, and maybe how we got here. So, um, Vary, I was wondering if you could sort of chat to us about that a little bit. Yes, thanks. Uh, you know, this is just a really important point in time um, for human rights in Scotland. So we've seen over the last uh, few years, really, just increasing awareness of the gaps in realisation of people's rights in Scotland. So whether that was through austerity policies, um, around Brexit and particularly around COVID, I think people have become more and more aware of the importance of human rights, but also more and more aware of all the people who are missing out on them, uh, you know, every day that they're living with everyday infringements uh, of their rights. And, and just increasing um, campaigning, really, and advocacy for uh, more of our human rights to be taken seriously. So, do you know, for it's been um, over many years, the UK has signed up to all of these uh, international human rights, and yet only some of them have been directly uh, in law. Um, and so there was 
just increasing advocacy to see those missing international human rights brought closer to home. Uh, so it's really uh, interesting times. Really specifically, back in the middle of Brexit, there was, first of all, a First Minister's advisory group set up to ask, well, how do we keep progressing human rights and not go backwards? And one of their key responses was, well, we need enhanced human rights law. Uh, and then after that, there was a national task force on human rights leadership set up that um, I sat on that asked, looked at that question of, well, OK, what does should this enhanced human rights law in Scotland look like then? What should be in it? Um, and then out of that came this whole host of recommendations that, as you're saying, David, where the big things are that there will be um, ISESCR, so that International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, uh, three group rights treaties, so CEDAW on women's rights, CRPD on disabled people's rights, and CERD on rights related to race, uh, and the right to a healthy environment, sort of built into uh, Scots law in a way that they become enforceable uh, and in a way that puts new duties uh, on public authorities to take them into account. So it's really big, ambitious um, plans. We, the, where we're at at the moment is the consultation was published in June and closes on the 5th of October uh, with more detail on the proposals. As we will get into the, some of that today. Um, and then we know that the bill will be introduced by June 2024. So we're now in quite a tight timescale to turn that uh, around. But it's definitely a really, really important um Development, but the bill is not written yet. You know, there's still a lot of detail to be worked out, uh, including how we make sure this works for care experienced people, uh, amongst other groups as well. Wonderful, thanks. It, it is worth sort of bringing into focus what the what the bill actually intends. And in this, you know, when we say incorporating international human rights, what does that mean? So, I'm not going to sort of go through the whole history, but as I'm sure many people who are listening are aware, we've had human rights treaties in international law since um, when the European Convention on Human Rights, that was in the 1950s, and then um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political and Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, those both followed in the 1960s. And the UK has been, at an international level, quite a strong supporter of these treaties, but it wasn't until the um, Human Rights Act 1998 that any of these treaties became enforceable before domestic courts, so where you could just go to a, a standard court in the UK and demand that your rights were were upheld. And for the European Convention on, on Human Rights, that's only what we class as civil and political rights. So things like the right to life, um, the right to privacy and family life, freedom of expression, um, but it doesn't cover economic, social and cultural rights. And this is the step that the, the Scottish government is now taking is to try and bring these other rights into uh, equal protection so far as possible. Obviously, there are limits on what the Scottish Parliament can do. Devolutionary uh, issues like the the fact that some of the rights extend across the Scottish and UK Parliament, so things like the right to social security, well that will impact social security payments paid by the Scottish Parliament, so things like adult disability payment, the Scottish child payment, it would not cover things like universal credit, which remain reserved to the UK Parliament. But this is a real step to, of, of the Scottish Government to be doing something sort of further than the the UK government seems to be willing to do. And within this context of, of Brexit and backsliding elsewhere, um, there does seem to be this real policy importance placed on it in Scotland to get the rights into Scots law. Absolutely. I think it's that um, sense of within devolution, we can do this. Uh, and it is the right thing to do in order to make sure that human rights are almost taken seriously. I mean, embedded into decision making um, that actually leads to people's uh, rights being realised. So 
uh, I think you're right. It's, it is really interesting this has taken place in the midst of uh, rights regression at UK level, you know, where we've seen those actually go backwards, particularly with the Illegal Migration Act. Um, but this is a really um, positive development. It's definitely the right direction uh, in Scotland. So really just the question is, how do we make sure that we do it right, we do it well, so that the bill is got everything in it in terms of the rights and the duties and accountability to actually drive change? Uh, particularly because it's a framework bill, it's not. It's meant to sit underneath uh, everything else and 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 provide a framework for other law and policy. So it's just so important that we get it right and make sure it actually leads to rights realised for particularly for groups and individuals whose rights are often at risk. So we know that actually human rights uh, are particularly you know for minority groups actually, and particularly for minorities or minorities, based particularly for people who are uh, often ignored. Uh, or can hold, find it really difficult to hold the government to account. Um, so if it's if it's going to work, it's got to work for them. I think that leads us perfectly into the research and the report that was published this week on care experience people and their position within the, the Scottish Human Rights Bill. So Laura, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a picture of the kinds of disadvantages that care experience people face um, in Scotland, how their human rights are or not met, and, and maybe where you see the sort of bill fitting in with with some of those those issues. Thanks, David. Yeah, of course. Um, maybe just at the outset, it might be helpful to to kind of talk a wee bit about the the definition of care experience. Um, so when we're talking about care experience people, we're talking about anybody who has been or is currently in care for any length of time, regardless of their age. And that definition's uh, from the Independent Care Review Promise document. And uh, it, it's, it's a, a kind of working definition that, that we use at Who Cares Scotland. Um, quite often you'll hear people referring to um, care experienced children or young people or care leaver, which is more of a kind of an eligibility under the Children and Young People Scotland Act rather than an identity. And, and, and something that Who Cares Scotland is really passionate about is talking about care experienced people as a group of all ages whose rights are at risk because there are some issues around eligibility for support where if you leave care before your 16th birthday, you're you're not a care leaver um, and therefore not eligible for aftercare up to the age of 26. So anyway, when we're talking about care experience people, I just wanted to, to be kind of clear about who I'm talking about. So in terms of the, the kind of disadvantages that care experience people face, we learned from the Independent Care Review, um, which uh, concluded in, in 2020, that care experience adults are twice as likely to have poor health more than twice as likely to have experienced homelessness, over twice as likely to have no educational qualifications, less than half the chance of having a degree, over one and a half times more likely to have financial difficulties, and over one and a half times more likely to experience severe multiple disadvantage. So by that, we're, we're talking about homelessness, substance use, mental health, offending. And, and these stats um, were, were published in 2020, but we know within our organisation and, and across the sector that although we're, we're three and a half years on from publication of the promise, our community are telling us through our participation work, through our advocacy evidence, including our helpline, that the, the these inequalities in you know health, um, education, housing are, uh, are 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 getting worse. They're not getting better. We did some work around mental health last year. Uh, where you know seven out of ten um, respondents to, to our survey um, had been unable to access mental health support, 
at the same time as um, all participants confirmed that um, their, their care experience had impacted their mental health um, and that trauma can affect you throughout your lifetime. We did some work around care experience parents, where a third felt uh, comfortable asking for help from services. And, and part of the, the reason that only a third um, felt that way was that they are um, concerned that revealing um, or identifying as care experience uh, would lead to an automatic referral or assumption of social work involvement. And, and your report highlights a stat, uh, David, around, um, you know, across Scotland, 1% of people are care experienced, but uh, one in five um, people refer to food banks and the Trussell Trust Network um, are, are care experienced. So, um, so uh, you know, the, 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 there's an over-representation of care experienced people accessing food banks. Where do you see the Scottish Human Rights Bill or human rights in general sort of fitting into this picture, either in their failure to be upheld or what the sort of meaning would be for care experienced people to see these written into law? I think to to, to start off with, I think um, it, it's important that the Scottish government are taking a human rights based approach to how they uh, how they develop this bill. And by that, I'm, I'm looking to the, the Scottish Human Rights Commission's panel principles. Um, so obviously there's there's participation, accountability, non-discrimination and equality, empowerment and legality. And just I want to focus in on the non-discrimination and equality principle. The Scottish government needs to be thinking about making sure that the bill will um, not discriminate against any group, but also advance equality of outcome for various equality groups and in particular um, prioritise groups who face the greatest barriers in realising their rights. And if they don't do that with this bill, I don't think there's a point to the bill because when we're talking about um, universal human rights, um, in, in my view, you can't, you, can't, you can't look at them without thinking about inequality-specific groups' faith. And I think that the, it's, it's going to be key that the Scottish Government really bear that in mind when, when you know, um, developing this bill further. In terms of uh, what the care experience community can get out of human rights and get out of stronger protection for their rights in this bill, uh, at the moment, I've mentioned the promise a few times. The promise is the kind of output of the independent root and branch care review that culminated in uh, the promise report and in 2020, along with a series of of, of, of other reports, the, the independent care review um, was was something that the care experience community called for. And it was quite a historical moment when the First Minister announced that a written branch review of the care system um, was going to be carried out. Uh, and, and there was a, a lot of kind of participation in, in, in the review. There was a lot of um, care experience uh, voices heard and, and, and other voices across the sector. Uh, and, 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 and the point of the review was to address some of the inequalities that, w- that we've spoken about so far on this podcast. There's been a concern around a lack of accountability for keeping the promise in Scotland. That it wasn't clear from, um, from the independent care review specifically who had oversight of uh, keeping the promise. Um, obviously, there was a lot of commitment from the First Minister at the time. Um, but it took between 2020 and 2022 for the Scottish Government to publish a Keeping the Promise implementation plan. In terms of human rights, all that said around um, uh, human rights was, um, it referenced the Human Rights Bill under the pillars 
the, the promised pillars of keeping families together and tackling inequality. So it was good that that link was made, but there wasn't a lot of specifics around how the Human Rights Bill could help um, people in Scotland keep the promise. Um, but the way I see it is we've got a massive opportunity here to bring greater accountability um, to the idea of keeping the promise. We talk about promise keepers across Scotland, but that's not specific, um, a specific you know, role um, to, to specific people other than everybody wanting to have the promise upheld. Um, and I think it will be much stronger if we start to think about who are the duty bearers to keep the promise, who are the rights holders um, that, that, that want the, the promise to be upheld. Um, and if we really start to kind of make this, um, this commitment um, move from like a, a kind of helpful metaphor, um, which, it, which it is, to, uh, um, to, to, to something that's, that's much more linked to the legality principle under the human rights-based approach, and it's linked to domestic and international human rights framework, um, where you can have care experienced people um, uh, being empowered to um, have their rights upheld and, and, and have redress if their rights aren't being upheld, and crucially for there to be monitoring of care experienced people's rights um, uh, and for the capacity and accountability of duty bearers to be increased. Um, and I think if we frame keeping the promise in that way, um, it's more likely to be kept. Thanks. And I think, yeah, that really helps bring into the the frame where the sort of human rights bill sits within, I think also and extends over other bits of government work, um, which is actually maybe an interesting conversation we can pick up later when we we sort of turn to considering what the bill will do. I think one of the interesting balances is that on the one hand, the bill potentially offers a lot of opportunities to achieve things or lock things in or put things in, in conversation with one another. So making sure the promise is done correctly or that the housing 2040 um, strategy on housing is, is done correctly. But equally, well, I don't know about you, but I sometimes worry that the all of the focus on the human rights stuff is drawing away from the actual targeted work, which sometimes needs to be. Sometimes there's an expectation that if we have a right to housing, then you don't need a housing development plan. And therefore, that sort of balance is really interesting. But Vary, if I can bring you in, I was going to ask about sort of the, the roles of other disadvantaged groups as well. I know that you've been involved in some of the lived experience panels and so on. So where do care experience people sit maybe in relation to some of the other groups that the bill is intended to to support? Yeah, do you know, it's such a good question because I was just reflecting when Laura was uh, talking there about accountability, that that is by, by uh, far away the big message of the lived experience board that we were facilitating on behalf um, of the government. So there's three parts. So there was um, to that board, there was a group of people with learning disabilities that um, SEL. Dave facilitated there's a group of children young people that together Scottish Alliance for Children's Rights facilitated and then we um, worked with a group of uh, 32 people just from all different diverse backgrounds including people with a care experience background and that was hugely one of the big um, points that they made is that this bill needs to lead to much better accountability uh, because of that sense of that gap often, particularly in Scotland in some ways, I think between the rhetoric uh, and sometimes even between kind of policy aims and targets and sometimes even between what's in law and the reality for in people's lives. And that gap is accountability gap, actually. Like how do how do individuals or groups um hold the government to account on on doing what they're they are meant to do with their duties or what they've promised to do. 
Um, so I, I think that is uh, really important. I think one of the, the good things about the plans for this bill is that it should, if written well and implemented well, <laughs> uh, lead to people and potentially uh, organisations uh, being able to hold the government to account through uh, through court, if necessary, as well as uh, in discussions and interactions, it should change that so they'll be able to, to use rights then. But also, as Laura mentioned too, about that sort of almost bigger picture um, accountability, because we know that we don't only need rights realised uh, for individuals, but often those the issues that individuals face are related to systemic uh, injustice and inequalities. So that this human rights framework bill has to enable accountability on getting change on some of those systemic issues, and um, so it's got to work. Uh, it's got to work for both, and that's why the monitoring and reporting bits so that can sometimes seem a bit um, dull and paperworky have got to actually be meaningful in terms of people people being able to use those to hold the government to account. Uh, and one of the lived experience board messages was part of that accountability means the government writes a report on what they have done to implement human rights, what they plan to do. And then there need to be consequences if they've not done that. Do you know what? It needs to have consequences. That's a kind of at the heart of accountability. And that applies absolutely to that point that accountability is what care experience people need if they're going to get to get that change, if we're going to see a system change for care experienced people. Um, and that is absolutely um, true as well for, for other groups who are also people whose rights are at risk. Um, so I think about you know, people with learning disabilities, in particular disabled people as a whole, people from ethnic minority uh, communities um, and, and many others. So I think it's just really interesting that it is, that is where it's at. That's what we need. We need uh, a human rights law and framework that enables that accountability to actually happen yeah I, mean, I think one thing we actually haven't maybe spoken about is the is the the breadth of the rights that are being brought in and the the the, the scope of things that it could change so um i think that you know at the top of the episode very very helpful list of the sort of the the treaties that are written in so the international covenant on economic social and cultural rights the special protection treaties cedaw uh, the CPRD, the CERD, and um, the right to healthy environment, and so on. But within those treaties, and I mean, focusing on 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 the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which is what the report focuses on, you know, we find a right to housing, a right to social security. Um, in fact, I should say that the the right to housing is part of a, a broader as a right to an adequate standard of living, and that covers food, clothing, and improvement of circumstances. Right to education. There are family rights in there. Those rights will, you know, once the bill passes, will be available to everyone in law. So I think maybe this this would be a good point to sort of break down the what the bill is is doing. And, and Vary, I think you were you 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 talked there about the sort of what looks like the boring paperwork of the monitoring schemes might actually, I think, for for those in the third sector and civil society, might actually be the most exciting part. So could you maybe expand a little bit on what the bill proposes in terms of its sort of administrative implementation, and then also maybe how that how that will change lawmaking if we sort of start where the, you know, at the start of the conveyor belt, every time the Scottish Parliament makes a law, or the Scottish Government proposes a law, how will the bill change that? And then maybe we sort of follow it downstream to to see how it impacts people once a, a human rights approach is taken. I, I think it's really important that, that to note that this bill will, or this law when it's passed, will sit uh, underneath 
everything else so that all law that is passed will have to comply with it. So on a really practical note, the, the government are proposing that um, there'll have to be a statement of compatibility uh, that is produced whenever a bill is introduced to the Scottish Parliament that sets out how it complies with the rights in this bill. And and that, um, as you were saying, David, those rights are quite significant, actually. There's loads, loads of them. So that's going to be quite an extensive thing. We're also um, asking that they should have to undertake a human rights impact assessment as well. To make sure that they've spoken to people, they've taken the evidence. It's it's not not in any way a tick box, but a really in depth consideration of what a new law would do for human rights. Um, and then the the significant thing is that the bill will place new duties on public authorities. So those duties will be an initial kind of procedural duty, but after that, there will be a duty to comply. Uh, with ICESCR and the right to healthy environment and maybe the group rights treaties as well. That's still um, up for discussion and something that consultation asks about. Um, but that duty to comply is, is potentially really significant because it has two parts to it. So they need to deliver on minimum levels of rights and they'll have to demonstrate that they're progressively realising them. That isn't taking targeted um, steps to improve uh, and when you think about it, uh, for example, care experience people, do you know, but that they will actually have to demonstrate that they are improving rights realisation for care experience people. Uh, and the, the way that they'll have to do that is uh, that there is going to be reporting schemes, basically. So there is a proposal that every pub Scottish public authority will have to produce reports that show what they've done to, to implement those duties and what they plan to do. Uh, and there might be a requirement to consult with people in order to write those reports. Uh, and sort of parallel, mirroring that really, the Scottish Government will also have a requirement to report. So it's being done through what's called the Human Rights Scheme, but that scheme is just a list of all the requirements for them to report against. So a lot of them are requirements related to how our human rights framework works. So, uh, you know, are they improving access to justice? Are they improving advocacy? Have they embedded human rights in budgets and that sort of thing? Um, but they should also be reporting on what are their priorities to, uh, uh, in terms of addressing that progressive realisation? Like, do, are they taking action on systemic issues? So I think adequate housing is, is a, a really good example to use because... Uh, we know right now there is a housing crisis in Scotland. There is in no way enough social housing. Um, and so loads of people are stuck in temporary accommodation, including children and families, for weeks, months, sometimes even years. Um, and so that's a good example of, of where action is needed on systemic underlying issue in order to realise the rights of individuals and, and, and individuals within families. And so those reporting um, schemes should be um, addressing those systemic issues as well, just showing what they're doing to get to improve on rights. It is it is the way we'll hold them to account, not just for being to tick the box, but actually uh, keeping getting keeping getting better way into the future. Um, that idea of that framework bill, if we set that framework up that gives the kind of levers we need um, for accountability on that progressive realisation of rights. I think, Laura, it would be great here to bring you in on sort of one of the important things in the Scottish Human Rights Framework is not just that it will be sort of focused on courts and governments, but that it stems all the way down to, to local authorities, to, to councils, to those carrying out public functions, which would include things like children's care homes and, 
I was sort of wondering, you, you'd already reflected on the, the discrimination that you've said that you're sort of members face but what what kind of difference do you think it might make having human rights at the forefront of those people's minds and maybe also sort of some of the the data points that that Vary brought up as well i think one of the issues that the, the promise raises is that actually collection of data on care experienced people is there are huge gaps in knowing the outcomes so what kind of difference might it make for an organization like yourselves who often basically have to do that data collection work for the government what would it mean to get an actual picture of the housing outcomes sort of sewn into the the fabric of 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 day-to-day um government thanks yeah it it would be really transformational and again i just want to reiterate how much of an opportunity the the bill would be for this um as you've kind of explained um the the issue currently with duties on the listed uh, authorities public bodies in the children and young people scotland act um, that are uh, called corporate parents because they have duties to to protect and to, to think about um, to consider care experienced uh, uh, children and young people in their um, when delivering their functions. Um, they have duties to plan and report on how they'll meet um, their their corporate parents and duties in Part Nine of the Children and Young People Scotland Act 2014. But those duties are limited to care experienced children and young people up to the age of 26. So reporting duties under this bill would ensure that care experienced adults are being recognised and that the right data is being collected to inform work to keep the promise. And and we think that this would improve equality for care experienced people because, as you said, there are data gaps on care experience. But with reporting, um, if care experienced people are specifically mentioned in in the text of the bill, um, then there would be a, through the human rights scheme, human rights indicators would be used to improve data collection for care experienced people, uh, and then that data could be used to to set ambitious targets around addressing inequalities that care experienced people, people face, like in in the area of housing, like you suggested, and and then um, we can move towards addressing some of some of the inequalities and and also promoting equality, you know, equality of opportunity. So not just trying to get to to um to to a, a stage where there's there is there's no longer discrimination or there's there's no longer inequality but um but yeah we're 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 being kind of positive and and, and working towards that lifetime of equality um that 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 experienced people are are calling for at the moment care experience isn't a protected characteristic listed under the Equality Act 2010. So when uh, public bodies in Scotland are, are, are carrying out their duties under the public sector equality duty, um, the Scottish-specific duties when they're doing equality impact assessments, for example, they're they're going through th- those nine protected characteristics. Some public bodies that are, corporate, that are listed corporate parents actually go further and do treat care experience as a protected characteristic. And we know that's the case with three local authorities in Scotland, but that's kind of early early days, and 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 we're 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 relying on the grassroots advocacy of care experience of organised care experience children, young people, often in in those areas, calling on their councillors to do that, and then for committed councillors, tends to be a councillor that has a direct relationship with a care experience person, whether that's you know from from their work or in their family. Um, that are that are passing those motions to treat care experience as a protected characteristic. So um, you know we'll keep campaigning for that to happen in other areas, but um, this bill would mean that um, there would be culture and practice within 
um, equality mainstream in, in, in the Scottish Government and other public bodies to think about care experience alongside the other protected characteristics. And you could have some really interesting intersectional uh, thinking and, and, and data, thinking about you know, how, how somebody might be um, struggling to access housing because their care experience, because they're from an ethnic minority. And, and yeah, I think that, um, yeah, there's just untapped opportunity and potential there. So I think that that's a, a a really helpful summary, and it's and it's worth it is worth maybe pointing out that the this is part of what the bill is still to consult on. In fact, what the report that that we published with the with the Human Rights Consortium uh, Scotland this week said was that that it's actually unclear. Sort of, there's the the listed equality characteristics, but the Scottish government could be doing more. That care experience would be one area that could be reflected in law or in the guidance or in the human rights scheme. And we sort of set out in the, the report what more could be done there. But I actually want to, so this is, this is I think, from my research background, the area that's most interesting is I think we've identified a lot of areas where there are data collection gaps or there are ways in which marginalised people are not taken into account. What is from from your perspectives, the specific benefit of this being solved through human rights. I, I mean, in fact, Laura, as you identified, many local authorities already treat care experience as an additional protected characteristic. That's a policy choice they could make. What is the benefit of, I suppose, first of all, wrapping this in the language of international human rights law and then connected to, but also sort of conceptually distinct? What is the benefit of this being law as opposed to being policy? I'll maybe start and then Vary will will probably say much more. <laughs> um, but uh, and I also feel like I'm cheating because I, I might be quoting you, uh, David, from your report. But um that the kind of main benefit is that can experience people's um rights violations could be properly enforced and rectified through the court system if they're recognized in, in the appropriate way in the bill um, by the equality provision as, as we've called for. We've seen with uh, corporate um, parenting, parenting duties in the the Children and Young People Scotland Act that unless there's and 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 also with the public sector equality duty with the Scottish specific duties with the reviews that um that the Equality and Human Rights Commission's done and the Scottish government that unless there's a kind of in, like in, enforceability the, the protections are weaker basically so I I think um it's that idea of um there being justiciability there being enforceability. And there being accountability, and uh, yeah, I'll stop there. But I'm interested to hear what Barry's got to say as well. I, I would just throw in, I think, something we we actually haven't spoken about is that the one of the the proposals alongside this bill is not just that it will put these rights in law, but also that it will actually change the way that courts work. And there are proposals in there, not just for things like remedies, different remedies for human rights um, cases, but also changes to standing. So um, essentially the rules that decide who can and cannot bring a case before the courts. And for me as a lawyer, I think that's one of the most, inter or well, with a legal background, uh, that's one of the most interesting areas in that it explicitly would allow third sector organisations to bring cases on behalf of the kind of people they help, which have previously been barred under Scots law. So there you're already opening up an avenue of redress sort of formally without getting into what the rights mean. You're just making the courts available. There's also plans for expanded legal aid and um, investigative powers for the Scottish Human Rights Commission, although they're still 
questions about how those will work in the consultation but i think it is worth taking into account that sort of administrative and i don't want to say bureaucratic that has the the, the, the wrong phrase but the kind of the actual practice of this will be will be different um it's not just a piece of legislation but yeah um that was just to give that sort of we have we haven't talked about the mechanics of the legal stuff so so vary back to you on the sort of question of what's what's so significant about this this step so so just on that um access to justice through the courts i do think that could be really significant actually because um what we have been saying uh, often and loudly is that this bill needs to lead to better access to justice and remedy do you know there isn't there are no rights without a remedy uh, and so even in increasing that uh, who can take a case is is potentially really important for the future, actually. It would mean that lots of individuals don't have to take cases themselves and go through all the who have that and the burden and the toll, but actually uh, organisations can take the weight instead. So I, I totally agree. I think I think there's, there's really specific elements like that that could be um, really important. I think in terms of the uh, why international human rights uh, is, really, uh, is a good question as well because this is, bill is not about making up human rights for Scotland and thinking what do we want them to be, what do we not want them to be this is very much about incorporation of international human rights for all the reasons Laura was saying about that's what makes them enforceable you know, gives them actual teeth and make sure that they're taken seriously is bringing them into, the, into uh, law in Scotland and so international human rights are always meant to be incorporated. They're not meant to state that international level. And actually, the UN has recommended uh, many times different UN committees uh, for them to be um, incorporated. And that can look different in different countries. But and this is one approach to that. Um, I think the other huge benefit is that we're not starting from scratch as well in terms of how they are interpreted. But actually, there's a whole body of... Uh, uh, international law sources around what those should look like um, and uh, as part of the human rights bill the, the plan is for courts and duty bearers be able to refer to those international law sources to really understand how to interpret them um, clearly so that, that's a really helpful thing it also means that they don't just get stuck but actually this is a framework that's going to last for uh, generations potentially and it means that it will be a more of a living instrument and keep um, developing over time which is uh, absolutely uh, right actually that we, that we do that I think one um, specific thing to mention as well is that uh, one of the duties on public bodies is that they'll have to deliver minimum core obligations so those are baseline level of rights uh, immediately for everyone all the time uh, and the UN have got lots of really strong guidelines around what those minimum core obligations should be and it's a good example actually we should take those guidelines at an international level and then we need to really develop them really specifically within the Scottish context so that people will be very clear about whether they have that right recognised or not or respected so uh, I think those minimum core are, are the very essence of being able to name and claim your rights because you'll be very clear if your rights, your, that baseline level of rights has been uh, realised or not and if it's not there should be clear accessible effective ways to get remedy on that to get it put right basically um, and that including through the courts but also non-court routes as well so it is very much about the uh, bringing the international human rights just closer to home in a way that they have more impact on people's 
everyday everyday life and more impact on almost how we do things in Scotland. There should be a rights-based way of making decisions and making sure people are heard. Barry, I totally agree. And I think uh, I, I just wanted to, to mention a wee quote from, from one of our members uh, from our participation work over the summer. So somebody said, consistency can only come with legal binding agreed parameters. Legal duty brings legal responsibility. And I just thought that 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 kind of perfectly articulates what we're talking about, that there that the that there needs to be um consistency and accountability and the international human rights framework um is is a is a solution for that. Just to pick up on exactly as the UNCRC bill was going through uh, a few, yeah, what was it, two or three years ago, you know, just that sense of it's that message about it's got to be not just guiding but binding, you know, that that's the difference. So We've all got all of these international human rights right now and they should be being taken into account. And in some ways they are, you know, some you see them already in some policies and things, but they need that's not enough. You know, they need to be binding uh, on on public bodies, on government. And then that will mean that rights holders, as in just people and groups, can actually use them. There's a sort of tradition in international law, but also in, in sort of constitutional law and legal thinking that that you know, actually, it's it's quite worrisome to trust the international sometimes. Well, in fact, I, I was thinking, I wasn't sure I was going to read the quote, but I, I was reading, um, uh, there's a book by Connor Geary and um, Virginia Mantavalu, um, which is sort of debating social rights. And there's a really great quote at the start of Connor Geary's chapter. So he says, social rights are valuable. They're entitlements that should be respected and promoted. Their value lies principally in the political arena, which I think we've all said here as well it's, it's about getting governance change and so on and then he says the least effective way of securing social rights is via an over concentration on the legal process with the constitutionalization of such rights being a special disaster wherever it occurs such a move turns the whole subject over to its falsest of false friends the lawyers a community which in the in this context and however generally well-meaning amount to little more than an array of pseudo politicians on the lookout for shortcuts to difficult questions and for ways of applying their trade that are more agreeable to their ethical selves now i i also am not a person who would trust lawyers maybe if you spend enough time around them that is the thing but i think what this conversation actually brings out is that sometimes those shortcuts can be really useful so Vary, you said something i think that's, that's really key which is that if the Scottish government were to come out and say we want to start our, our like an entire constitution from scratch, it would just get bogged down and held up. And here the shortcut is actually that it lets you go, look, here's some stuff. Here's some things that have been said at the international level, but we're going to take them. We're going to develop the minimum core obligations in conversation with Scottish civil society, develop these processes through training, through a sort of bottom-up approach of making sure that governance works. And I think... Like I think Geary has a case, and if you know, if we had a whole other hour podcast, I would, I would love to talk through that that side of things. But I think sometimes the critique of rights that you see from lawyers overestimates that everyone thinks lawyers are doing the work. I think it's even something that I found when I sort of come into this space of going, "Oh yeah, everyone, everyone thinks human rights work that way," but actually, like, the law is a lot more complicated. And then you go and talk to everyone, and you realize what people are excited about, and it's not the courts, it's not the it's not what the UN committees say beyond the fact that those might be helpful for getting the Scottish government to do something or the local authority to do something. 
but it's so it's very easy to inflate the idea that oh it's in law and therefore it's lawyers and lawyers are the worst people so we should keep it all political but yeah sort of thoughts on Barry I can see you've unmuted um my initial response is if this bill becomes something that is only for lawyers it will have failed you know because uh what we absolutely know is that rights need to be enforceable so that's that you need a remedy you need you need them to have teeth if they're going to be taken seriously and um, but the but i uh, i i was reading something recently about there's lots of concerns when the human rights act was passed that there would be the courts would be flooded with human right, human rights cases and they would just be impossible to handle and it would become this litigious kind of society and obviously that did not happen um you know there have been many cases and they've been significant and they've led to protection of human rights and but likewise with this bill it's not that you want Lots and lots of cases. It's not meant to be a thing for lawyers. Ultimately, although they are needed, and we do need legal aids and all that. But but actually, what's most exciting is the impact it could have in terms of embedding rights into decision making by public authorities and by government, both to address um, uh, issues faced by individuals. But again, back to those systemic uh, injustices, and that that's actually what's most exciting, really. So if you have rights. Uh, affecting things like how you design services, how you set your budget, uh, the priorities you set, how you train your staff. And a lot of that is, to be honest, not going to be spelled out in the bill as such. The bill just sets up the, the, the levers and the rights and the duties and the reporting and everything to then make that possible. If that actual shift in terms of how decisions are made is going to happen, then we need as much uh, emphasis, if not far more, to be honest, on the implementation of the bill. So all the things that that takes, uh, the capacity building, the understanding, people having the information about their rights, and then that will change the conversation around the table as well between uh, public, like a local authority and an individual. So what we hear often is when people mention human rights at the moment, they get a kind of, so what, in response, as in, that's like oh very good, but like this is that's not relevant. Or or they get accused of being too aggressive actually, and and kind of being a bit too fighty. Um, whereas actually that conversation should uh, be much more about how someone's rights will be respected. So actually looking at that, and that should be a sort of core question. So I, I think, uh, yeah, is this is actually not for lawyers, I'm afraid, on the whole. I mean, lawyers will use it, do you know, and we should, if this works, we should see, I think, some really strategic test cases uh, in the next few years that will really help to clarify, interpret, enforce rights so that we're very clear what they mean. Um, and we want those you know, cases to have really important uh, rulings that actually advance people's rights. So yes, we need some, and we need the SHRC to be able to take cases and, and all that, but but actually much more than that, we should just see improved uh, decision-making by public authorities, which uh, just make our rights-based, and particularly back to that, rights-based means um, asking the questions of who is missing out on these rights and why, and, and then taking steps to address that including um, care experienced people, will certainly be one of the responses to that, you know, that actually they have to look at, uh, you know, if care experienced people are missing out on the right to adequate housing, actually, well, why is that? They should be talking to people to find out and putting in plans to address it. I mean, I think that is going to be the the 
not that the work in the consultation is done and perhaps as you sort of turn to that to to wrap up of actually what what is what is left but i think it's what has been quite clear for me in sort of attending events of the third sector and, and being engaged in these discussions is that people are aware there's going to need to be work to sort of keep rights i don't know if fluid is the right the right word but i think sort of keeping that it i almost see it as sort of like inflating a balloon inside government like stuff gets really stuck and and hardened and then you you sort of inject rights in and they expand and you need to keep them expanding because there are ways that law can definitely be a a ceiling on 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 things as well and i think one of the fears that i definitely have around sort of if this doesn't go right or if the even if the just the sort of the scottish government will behind this kind of drops or or the you know political wind changes is that once you set out the limits of a right that is also sort of where then the government can do whatever they want and i think you can see that at the the uk level we've had repeated um human rights based challenges against aspects of austerity of the bedroom tax and so on and the courts have sometimes been willing to say okay well for disabled people in this particular category you cannot apply the bedroom tax but the bedroom tax in general is human rights compliant and then that is it actually kind of gives a sheen to the government to say well you know we've been told this is okay and so i think not just not relying on rights but making sure that also that doesn't become the sort of the way that decision makers think about it that it's not just the what was the last court judgment that i'm supposed to be implementing what did that say as as we've discussed through this the the reporting mechanisms the human rights monitoring scheme those will hopefully all help keep that in the forefront but it is i think it there is a risk of that being an uphill battle and it's something that you know i think civil society in the third sector is engaged in and obviously it's been such an uphill battle to even get the bill consulted on and to get the bill out that it already feels crazy to be saying that in 2030 once it's five years in we have to be doing the next stage of work to push that but i think um if there's one thing that that Geary gets gets right there is that is the need to be engaged in that and i think Scottish civil society is, but it's something we'll have to we'll have to revisit. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I, I agree. And almost the worst case scenario is uh, we get this bill through, and in effect, it sits on the shelf or becomes a sort of narrow tick box compliance type thing. A sort of um, so yeah, like you're saying, whether it just becomes about the sort of case law only, or uh, becomes a little bit like the public sector quality duty is criticised for, which it sort of becomes very paperworky and bureaucracy as opposed to anything real. And I think that I just emphasise really that um, you know the bill is is just a, a framework, you know, in terms of all those rights and duties and accountability levers, and and it's got to be accompanied by uh, loads of emphasis on building that whole culture of human rights, which you know we we talk about a lot, but I think we need to start getting really specific in terms of what actually what would drive that you know and make that real that's actually going to have the the, the biggest impacts especially in the longer term yeah i'd agree with that and i think it i think that's why it's so important that the how in terms of how the bill's gonna um affect change it does need to be legislated for it does you know there does need to be quite strong pro provisions in i think the what's been proposed the human rights scheme of the bill um, to ensure that there's measures in place to, that are going to enable that human rights culture. And I think um, we need to make sure that we're not missing any um, opportunities with, with, with that part of the bill.
So, for example, we're calling for a specification around independent advocacy for people whose rights are most at risk, um, specifying care experience people. Um, and and there's uh, and, and, the, and the reason kind of linking back to the, the quote that you gave, um, David, like the, the, the reason that we're we're calling for that is um, that, you know, we have experience from various projects, for example, around the implementation of um, sibling rights in Scotland under the Children's Scotland Act that sometimes, particularly in secure care, um, when a care experienced young person has a lawyer, um, all of a sudden the the, the judge is, is, is much more interested in the Children's Scotland Act and the new rights there. Um, just that the, the the physical presence of, their, of, 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 of there being a lawyer accompanying that young person um, can help, even if it, it, you know there's no legal challenge at the end of the day. Um, we also see that with our advocacy workers. Um, quite often, once you know an advocacy worker is is present and able to help somebody articulate their rights, um, then um, there's an easy solution, um, and and we find that it brings about better um, service provision, better decision making. Um, there's been a narrative in um, in some uh, some some reports around well, if uh, systems get less complex and if you know rights are being experienced. Um, Better then uh, there, there will there will no longer be a need uh, for for advocacy um, and I guess you you know the, the people in that camp could argue the same um, around uh, lawyers and legal protection um, but but that that's definitely not the case um, the, there's the there's the quote from um, uh, actually it's debated whose quote this is because uh, I think it's attributed to Thomas Jefferson but it's not his quote um, and it's around like the, the 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 price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And I, and I think that's kind of, you know, part of what this bill can bring. Um, it can, if it's specific enough, it can ensure that um, along with these um, stronger rights protections, there's also stronger measures of accountability. And in terms of advocacy, what we really don't want to see in the bill is like advocacy being mentioned um, in statutory guidance or in a, a bracket somewhere. We want there to be like a really strong provision around access to advocacy for people that really need it. I also think the bill has a lot of potential in terms of public reputational accountability, um, because if you're framing um, the accountability in terms of rights, it just I feel like it has it, it has a connection to something stronger because there's a, a real historical uh, grounding in uh, the human rights framework. Um, versus when you frame something in a kind of policy vision or commitment, um, which is is more seen as something that kind of flows in the wind and depends on what government. Um, States that commitment. Uh, so, so I think that um, there's something kind of timeless around um, framing things in international human rights. I think that's a, that's a really helpful framing to sort of begin to, to to close us out on because we've we've actually you know all, a lot of the language around the human rights culture is also that the Scottish government um, has already been talking in those terms. We've had discussions of human centered human rights centered approaches. And so on to the COVID inquiry and to to multitude of other things, but that's not a criticism of the outcomes of that. But I think most people would agree that it's not been clear what that has been either. And at least the bill gives you something to say that now, when you say you're taking a human rights based approach, it means these rights, and we can then have a conversation about where those rights go far enough. Whether a human rights centered approach is always the the only way to do something, or whether that you know if there is more work to do elsewhere, but. Um, I think it does, again, going back to sort of 
Geary's metaphor of like shortcuts, like sometimes the shortcuts are good or sometimes the shortcuts are actually, it's a way of shortcutting. I don't want to use the, I don't want to push this metaphor particularly since I've already had a power cut on the, the trying to record this podcast already, but it's a way of actually flowing the power from one area where people have been saying human rights for ages, but the shortcut is now that all the power that stems from legal accountability for better or worse flows into that space. And now that can be useful to to do a lot of things, to change the baseline of a lot of things and to 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 open up other kinds of policy conversations. Once you know that foundation is there, it gives you the grounds and sort of the change in the the rules of the game. Do you have any sort of final thoughts on the, I guess, the consultation, which is coming up? Hopefully, if this episode goes out in time, you'll hear it maybe a couple of days before the consultation closes and you can write very quickly through the 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 48 questions or however many there are. But um, yeah, uh, turning to you first, Vary, is there any anything else you'd like to say about the the current progress consultation and then what's going on after and, and anything that the Human Rights Consortium Scotland is pushing for specifically? Yeah, thanks. Um, so in short, in terms of the bill proposals at the moment that are set out in the consultation, uh, we think a lot of them are good. It almost gets a tick box of, well, not bad, but could be so much better um, because we think it needs to be as strong as possible. Over all the reasons we've talked about, you know, this is going to be around, this is a framework that's going to be around for, you know, a long time to come. We've got to make it as strong as possible. So some specifics within that, we think, um that strong compliance duty has got to apply to as many rights as possible within devolution, totally recognising that that is a complex thing. You know, devolution is in flux and um, it's difficult to pin that down in some ways, but they've got to go, the government's got to draft the bill to put that strong compliance duty uh, on as many rights as possible. And particularly we're uh, flagging up there's many disabled people's rights that are um, just being overlooked at the moment in terms of the proposals that should be taken seriously. Um, a couple of other things that we are flagging is the whole area of access to justice and remedy, um, because right now it's just incredibly difficult to access remedy. It's um, almost for some people more chance than design in the system is really difficult. So uh, the bill needs to lead to change in that. Um, we are also flagging up uh, around timescales. So there's no timescales within the consultation about how this will be implemented. So we are concerned that there could be a big flurry of attention to get the bill passed. And then some of the really difficult decisions are after that, including uh, and the difficulties of just implementing it properly. So, um, so for example, we're saying there should be a maximum of six months from the bill passing to when the first procedural kind of preparing preparing duty comes in and then a maximum of two years until it's fully implemented because people cannot wait any longer you know people are living with rights infringements now um, and so it's really important that we actually pin down those sort of um time scales to get that uh, to happen um but yeah lo lots of other points but those are some of our um big ones alongside the suffering to uh implementation and the commission's powers there are 44 questions in the consultation so it is really long it's really uh, complex some of them repeat themselves slightly uh, and yeah it's just really important um, that we respond I think we are really encouraged actually by the level of engagement uh, in the consultation we've had a whole number of events and we were just counting up there's been over 400 organizations and um, take part in uh, events over the last couple of months 
Um, so, uh, you know, I highly expect we'll see a, a large number of responses. And then the emphasis has got to be the government's got to take them into account. You know, they've got to listen, and particularly to the voices uh, of seldom, as we like terms, seldom heard, but, you know, particularly to the voices of people whose rights are at most at risk, actually, should should directly influence what the content of the bill is. 400 organisations, that's an incredible scope and I think also uh pays tribute to the the, the work that you and other organizations have done in, in making this visible because I know I know from prior conversations a few years ago that a lot of third sector organizations were like, well, like I I guess we should say something about this because we do housing or social security or poverty and it'll be important, but how do we begin to fathom what this is? And um there was the I'm forgetting the name now, but the, there was the UK government-wide consultation on human rights a couple of years ago that wrote the consultation entirely in legalistic jargon. No one knew how to respond to it. And then in the end, the government didn't even read or follow any of the responses. So hopefully, I mean, the Scottish government, again, for all the consultation is long and complex, it is at least asking a range of questions that a range of organizations can respond to and i think that's a good sign that they haven't locked it into what is your opinion on un committee general comment 32 and the transposition of international laws like it's just generally what people need you know yeah absolutely so you know you're right i mean at least and at least there is this opportunity to have a say and um and they will publish the responses we know that they'll they're commissioning an independent um, body to do to analyze them and then they'll publish that as well so we'll see clearly what was said and then it's really for all of us to make sure that the government then take that into account and including taking into account back to the lived experience board advice which has been significant, actually. There's a whole huge amount of advice there as well that they need to take into account and then get the bill written by June <laughs> and introduce, you know, there's, so there's a lot There's a lot to be done. I think they've got the core of some really good proposals there. They just now need to strengthen them and kind of up their game, particularly around um, access to justice and a strength of duties. Um, and then it will, it will be something really, really good. Laura, if I can turn to you finally, um, who cares Scotland in terms of the human rights bill, but also just generally the sort of work that your organisation has going on? Is there anything you'd like to, to to leave with the listeners? Thanks. Well, in terms of the human rights bill, we echo a lot of the Human Rights Consortium Scotland's uh, calls. We're a member and uh, we're really grateful to the Consortium as well for um, having some of our members on, their, on the Lived Experience Board um, for the bill. Uh, we are calling for the quality provision to name and explicitly protect care experienced people. Um, so we're, we're calling for that equality's approach to be taken to the bill. And as I said, the human rights scheme to state that there should be independent advocacy for people whose rights are most at risk um, to make sure that, uh, that, that, that there's lifelong access uh, to advocacy um, for care experienced people in Scotland. And if I haven't kind of reiterated it enough uh, already, they are kind of um, response to the the bill is is really um, calling for that lifetime of equality for care experienced people. Uh, so there's extra protection for care experienced people of all ages to access their rights. Um, and 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 if uh, if if you're able to to read their response, we'd be really grateful if 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 you're listening and you're in a position where you're able to take on board or echo our calls, we'd be really grateful. 
Um, and if you want to uh, kind of connect with the Care Experience community in Scotland, who will be calling for Lifelong Right, we have a campaign launching in October uh, at our uh, Love Rally on the 29th of October, which is basically a lovely, beautiful march uh, from uh, Glasgow Green to George Square. Um, that there'll be lots of um, care experienced people, there'll be families, there's often dogs, there's corporate parents. So you might see, you know, the police rocking by with a banner. Um, uh, basically, uh, sharing love for care experienced people in Scotland. Um, but this year in particular, calling for lifelong rights. Um, and if you if you don't know any care experienced people, um, then I would really urge you to, to, to treat this as a kind of gold embossed invitation. To come along and um, because see once you hear from somebody who's care experienced you can't not care no thank you so much that's a, a wonderful note note to go out on um yeah thank you uh to those of you out there that are listening and and um making through what has been quite a, a detailed and, and complex discussions so hopefully hopefully it's been it's been interesting and um, just thank you again to to, to Barry snowden and, and laura pasternak for joining me um we'll have the reports and and everything that we've mentioned linked in the show notes that sounds like very podcast language but i think we can do that and we'll have on the skoga website as well um but just to reiterate that the, the main ones are the, the 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 report um on the human rights consortium scotland's website on care experience people and then the consultation responses that who cares scotland and and the human rights consortium have have put out um those should all be available on their on their websites and we'll link to them so thank you for joining us for the third episode of the Scottish Council on Global Affairs podcast, and we hope to have you join us for our next episode. Thanks.